This morning, as we continue in John's narrative, we're going to look at what happened when Jesus visited the temple during the first Passover celebration that he attended during his ministry. He had been to many before this point, but he had just begun his ministry, and this is the first Passover feast that he went to and celebrated the Lord at during his ministry. So this happens at the onset or beginning of his ministry. So we're going to look at this experience and this historical event and what he actually did. Let's pray uh, for our time in God's Word before we move on. Father, we humble ourselves before you now and we just, we ask, Lord, for your power to be released in this place, Lord, through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we have no power. I have no innate power or anything like that. I'm a powerless, futile, human, fallen human being. I've got nothing. I can talk, I can do things, but I don't have any power. Lord, you're the one that has all the power. We saw an expression of that power last week when you turn water into wine. You did something impossible. We ask for that power in this place today through your presence, through the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would turn us away from our sin, away from our self-sufficiency, and toward the Savior of mankind, Jesus Christ. There might be some in this room who have yet to uh, come to know him in a saving way. We pray that you would work that act of divine power in their lives, that miracle of salvation. There are some here, including me, who need to be sanctified, need to be built up more and more like Jesus, and we pray for that to happen too. Uh, primarily what we pray for is that you would be glorified during this time and that these people in this room would hear from you. So we pray that you would speak now. Speak words, your word, and speak them in power and change us. We love you and we give our attention and our time now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at 13. Verse 13 is where we're picking it up. We're just going to kind of creep through this text. It's an amazing passage. I was pretty blown away this week as I was uh, studying, reading, meditating, praying, and writing. I was just like, wow, I should not preach this sermon because I'm terrible. I've got issues, right? I feel like that every time I approach God's Word, I look at it and I find my shortcomings in those things. But then I'm reminded of God's grace in Christ, right? So that's how I can stand here and do this. It's by His grace, right? So, great time in the Word, but let's just get right to it. Verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Simple statement. It's a simple narrative. It's a historical timeline here that we're looking at. Real simple stuff. You might be saying, what is Passover? Well, Passover is a Jewish festival that celebrates the exodus uh, of the Israelites from Egypt or out of Egypt, out of that bondage. How many of you have heard of the story of Moses and how they were in Egypt and they were brought out? That's what Passover commemorates. It basically points to the freedom that God brought through Moses to the Israelites out of that slavery in Egypt. Uh, the Feast of Passover, as some call it, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they kind of parallel each other, they're similar. Uh, this is the first festival that God commanded Israel to observe. You can read about that in Exodus 12. They had a bunch of festivals that they observed. They were all these commemorations of certain things and celebrations. But this is like the first one that God gave His people. He literally gave it to them right before they left Egypt and got out of that slavery. Passover is one of the three pilgrimage festivals in Scripture during which the Jews were commanded to travel to Jerusalem and observe the feasts together. So if you were a Jewish person back in these days and you lived somewhere else, you were to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. You'd go to the temple with all the other Jews. It was kind of a gathering point for the Jews who were spread out all over the world. So this is one of three of those types of events that you had to make the trip to Jerusalem. That's what Passover is. It takes place in the springtime during the Hebrew month of Nisan or what we call April. That's uh, right, piggybacks there with Easter. It's right around Easter time. Now after spending a few days in Capernaum and establishing his ministry headquarters there, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate 
this Passover festival or feast. That's what we're reading about. That's why he's gone from Capernaum to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. I like the phrase, went up. I don't know how your Bible translates it, but my ESV, which is a great translation, says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And this is an interesting detail because if you look at a map, Jerusalem is below Capernaum on the map. Capernaum is up here, Jerusalem is down here. If that's the case and that's the truth and that is a geographical fact, then how are they going up and not down? When we say we're going to L.A., we say we're going down to L.A., right, or Bakersfield or Fresno or whatever. This is a location that's lower than Capernaum. Why would he say go up? Because of the elevation. Uh, uh, There's an elevation difference here. Jerusalem is at about 2,600 feet above sea level. Capernaum is 700 feet below. So you have the elevation difference. But that's not the primary reason why they went up to it. They went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem, and more particularly the Temple Mount, is known as the Hill of God or the Mountain of God. And so uh, if you were in the region and you were traveling to Jerusalem, you were, in a sense, ascending the Mountain of God. You were going up, even though it's a elevation difference, it really has to do with, with the position of God in, that, in the temple and all that. That's the high place in Israel. So think of it like that. I think it's an interesting detail. And these guys that wrote scripture, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. They put these details in here for a reason. And, and what do we do so often? We fly right by them. We don't consider them or think about them. But all these details are here to tell us something about what's going on here. This is God's holy mountain, Psalm 48, verse 1. When you went there, you were ascending the mountain of God. Think of it like that. Jesus' observance of Passover illustrates something very, very important. He's going there to participate in the festival, and that illustrates something very important. It tells us something important about Him. It shows us His submission to the law and His willingness to obey it. This is a a massively important fact and reality here. In order for Jesus to qualify as our Savior, He had to obey all of God's commands and thus fulfill all righteousness. Passover was commanded. You're under God's law. You have to go and, and go to the celebration. You have to participate. You have to be a part of it. So it is a law that you have to go to that. Jesus came to obey all of God's laws perfectly, no breaches, because we breach them all the time. We lie, we do all of these things. Just look at the Ten Commandments. We pretty much break them daily. Jesus came to obey all of the laws, including these festival things, going to Passover and all of that. He obeyed and went to Passover, thus fulfilling that aspect of the law. And I tell you what, I am super, super thankful that Jesus obeyed and fulfilled all of God's commands for me and all of God's commands for us. Because in order to try to obey all that God has commanded and to do it perfectly without any breaches is absolutely impossible for sinners like you and I. We can do good on some days, but then come Wednesday... It just, we're down, there's no way for anyone to obey all of God's laws perfectly. And you know what the penalty is for breaking any of His laws even once? Damnation and hell. So think about this for a moment. Jesus goes to the Passover feast. You don't have to. Jesus fulfills and obeys all of God's commands. It's not required of us. We have to believe in Him and trust in Him, and we receive the righteousness that He earned. If we don't have Jesus, then it's up to us to obey those laws perfectly. It's impossible. We're in a lot of trouble. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's Christianity. That's the Bible in a nutshell. So when I see Jesus leaving Capernaum to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, I'm super pumped because that ain't me going to do it. He did that for me. He did that for you. And he obeyed all of God's commands in our place and did it perfectly. And he obtained the righteousness that we need to be able to enter heaven. And so we enter 
Not through our obedience to God's laws, but through our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how we obtain that righteousness. That's the gospel in a nutshell, you guys. Every religion in the world, apart from Christianity, is telling you to earn your way. Earn your way. And here's how it's going to play out. When you go stand before God, there's going to be a set of scales up there. And your good stuff's going to be on one side and your bad stuff's going to be on the other. And hopefully your good will outweigh your bad. Well, if you know me, here's the bad. Ding! It gets pinned to the ground. Just ask my wife. Ask my kids. There's no way, right? But that's how every religion in the world treats salvation. You better. Islam, all of them say it's all about earning. It's all about earning. And Christianity and the the gospel of Jesus Christ says it's not about your works and your earning. It's about my works, my completed works, and what I earned for you. There's the difference, right? That's the difference. How spectacular is that? How simple. Jesus goes to Passover. Hallelujah, he's earning my righteousness. That's the way you look at that. He just made a little trip, but it means so much. Oh, it's fantastic. Think about this. Think about what Isaiah 64, 6 says. It says, every deed done apart from faith is a filthy rag. It's a stench in the nostrils of God. That just tells us that there's no way for us to earn our way to heaven. That tells us that all other religions are false and bogus and lying to us. So I want you to remember that because that's the gospel. It's so important that we do that. We need the righteousness of Christ if we are to be saved, if we are to inherit heaven, if we are to go there. We need the righteousness of Christ. And here's a fact. He gives it to all who humble themselves and come to him by faith. That's how you go to heaven. You believe in Jesus and you receive his righteousness. Okay? That's a big, big truth, and we see that even playing out in this text. Let's look at what Jesus discovered. This is where it gets crazy. Let's look at what what Jesus discovered when he arrived at the temple. So he goes to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, and then he enters into the temple. Let's look at what happens when when, when he steps in. 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So he walks in and he sees the series flea market in the temple. That's what he sees. He sees Denio's Farmer's Market, right? That's, he walks in and, and it's like a business is going on in this place. There's a strip mall that's been set up. And let me tell you something. This is why this is so important. The temple was consecrated for a particular purposes. It was built, erected, put together. It was beautiful. It was awesome. But it had some... some some consecrated purposes. It was set apart for things in particular, not everything and all things, but for a couple of things, primarily worship and prayer. So it's like a church. It's like a church building. It's a church facility. Why are churches out there? So you can come and worship God, right, in Jesus' name, so you can do those kinds of things. Think of it like that. So it has a purpose, but... Jesus, when he steps through the threshold into the courts, he sees that it's not being used for its purpose. He found a a loud marketplace with all sorts of animals and money changers. I'm thinking that before he even got to the gate and walked in, he already heard what was going on on the other side of the wall. Right? Coins splashing around. People, hey, I'll give you this and I'll do that. Auctioneers throwing down. He he hears this as he's walking up to it. What do you think he's thinking? Do I even want to go in? Right? So he hears this stuff. And when he comes in, he he sees this stuff. And, and, And the fact is, he was absolutely appalled by what he was seeing and hearing. And he became filled with what we call righteous indignation. That's righteous anger. That's not just being angry over whatever. That's that's being angry over the things that anger God. And he is filled with righteous indignation. He is up 
set when he sees and hears what's going on in this place. And some people speculate and say, well, he was upset because of the commerce that was going on, right? And the profits that were being made. Now, he's not upset about that. If you say that he's upset because there were profits, you know, profits being made and all that in there, then that makes God sound anti-profit. God is not anti-business. God is not anti-capitalism. God is not anti-profit. His people making a dime. He's, he's not opposed to those things. He's ordained those things uh, so that we can take care of our families, so that we can give back to him in these things. It's not wrong. Some people say, well, this, that's why he's ticked off because they were doing business. No, 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 it's not business that upsets him. You must understand that the animals that were present were there for sacrifices. They were there that people could purchase those animals to be sacrificed at that very temple. The money changers were there for a particular purpose. So the animals were there, the money changers were there as part of a service that was being provided to the pilgrims, to the people who would come there to worship. Now think of how beneficial it would be if you were a distant Jewish person coming to that temple to worship. How hard would it be for you to travel a couple hundred miles with a bunch of animals that you had to sacrifice at the temple? Right? Man, could you go back and get the oxen? He's over there. Man, he's, oh man, he's tearing up that. He just killed someone's dog. I mean, just think about it. How difficult would it be? I can't even get my dog to comply in a park. Right? It decides to just, it's got to do its business right in front of people. It's like, seriously? You don't know me by now? You don't know you get kicked when you squat in front of all those people? This is a nightmare. My dog embarrasses me everywhere we go. It does. You just think about traveling all this distance with animals and how hard that would be to keep that all in order. So what, so what I'm telling you is that they didn't have to travel with the animals. They could purchase them as they got closer to the place where they were going to use them animals. Well, what about the money changers? What's that all about? That just sounds evil. Money changer. Changing 500 sounds like over at, you know, at Vegas, right? You give them a little bit of money. I don't know anything about that. You give them money. It gives you chips. You play, right? Sounds like, sounds like that. Sounds like a, a dealer or whatever you call that person. No, that's not what they were. They were part of the service as well. You must understand why they were there. In Israel, the land of Israel, you had all sorts of competing currencies. And, and all of the Jewish people were required to pay a temple tax every year. So when they came to this feast, this is when they paid their temple tax. But guess what the temple administrators did not do? They did not take all of the different forms of currency. They took one. So if you showed up with a subpar currency, you had to trade it in. You had to exchange it and get the right currency, the pure silver coins that those administrators required. So you'd come in with your bootsy-looking pennies, and you'd be like, uh, yeah, here, I want to pay my tax. Uh, sorry, dude, that's, those are pesos. Uh, we only take the dollar over here. So you'd have to go over and convert those pesos into what they would take. Think of it like that. So they were there performing a service. Of course, they charged 12%, right? So you put out more money than you got back. But they were there to help people. They were there. This enterprise was put into place to assist the people of God with their ability to worship. We'll provide animals nearby. You can purchase them here. We'll trade out your coins so you can bring the appropriate money. See, that doesn't sound evil or wicked, does it? No, that's, that it's not. It's a service. It's a service. He was not upset at that. Here's what he was upset with, where it was taking place. He wasn't upset with it. He was upset with where it was taking place. Well, why is that? Hadn't it always taken place here? No. No, it had never taken place in the temple courts like this before. In fact, they used to have all the booths for the money changers and for the animals all set up at, 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 the, at the base of the Mount of Olives on the other side of the Kidron Valley. So it was a great distance from the temple. You'd, you'd have to go over here to get those things and then travel across this small valley. And it isn't the Central Valley. It's a lot smaller now. You had to tra uh, travel over this little distance, a couple of miles here. Then you'd go up, uh, up, climb, ascend up onto the Temple Mount. Then you'd go in and do your thing. So what happened was the administrators thought, well, we'll make things more convenient and easy on these pilgrims and we'll move it from over here to inside the court of the Gentiles at the temple. That's what they did. So they basically took a section of God's holy temple and transformed it from a place of worship and prayer into a place of merchandise. That's what they did. 
R.C. Sproul says they made it seeker-sensitive. I love that. The idea of, of seeker-sensitive is to, is to make the things of God easier and, and um, more palatable and more attractive for people, especially outsiders, right? We've got to soften this stuff up because some of this stuff's real hard. Let's, let's paint it a little bit different so we can attract unbelievers and, 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 and whatever into the church so we can get them saved and get them integrated and all that. There's a whole movement called the Seeker Sensitive Movement that's out there. It's going on right now. It's been going on for about 20 years, maybe longer than that. But he says this, that's what they were doing. They were trying to make it Seeker Sensitive. I started laughing. But then I thought about it. Isn't that what pastors and churches are doing today? Isn't it? One prominent church recently transformed a large building into a fitness center where you can go and pump iron for Jesus. <clears throat> yeah, Lord. Now, I'm not opposed to pumping iron. My body tells you that I am. I'm not muscular. I look like I'm totally against it. I look like I'm in favor of ice cream, truth. But I'm not opposed to... To, 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 uh, I'm not opposed to physical fitness. I'm not opposed to, to lifting weights or any of those things. I think all that stuff's good and beneficial. It certainly can be as long as you don't become a total narcissist and implode. It's a good thing to be physically fit. The, the Bible says that there's some value in that. But don't do that at the expense of being spiritually fit because that's of the highest level of importance. So, so I don't want to sound like I'm harshing on a church for doing this. I'm just telling you I'm not opposed to it in a general sense. But the question I ask is, is that something that we should be doing at a church? That's, that's my question. Is that, is that something that we go to a church to do, to pump iron for Jesus, not to pump you up, the gospel? Because you could argue the same point about having these animals and this commerce in there. Well, you know, it was just a thing of convenience and all that, so it's not inherently wrong, right? You could say that, but we see Jesus mad. Uh, my question is, 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 is that the right place for something like that to be taking, uh, taking effect and, and being done? If you ask, you know, they give a rationale. Well, we built this place as a, as a gift to the community to be a blessing to the community to offer them. Play. There's a fitness club on every corner. And my question to you is, and hopefully somebody from over there will listen to this, if it's such a blessing and gift to the community, then why do you charge membership fees? I got a little problem with that, even though it's, it's, it's according to what they say, a really good deal. Let me just say this. And I sound like, oh, well, look, he's all self-righteous and a Pharisee and all that. I got problems, believe me. But I do have a problem with when, when, when we take something that has been sanctified for particular purposes, I have a problem with when we take that and we use it for something other than its intended purpose. And I feel that that's crossing a line. And if I did it here, hopefully you'd say, well, it's a small gym, it's not really worth having a membership of, but I don't think it belongs here, Pastor Phil. Are there other things... That, that pastors bring into the church to draw people in and make them secret. Are you kidding? They got cafes today. They got, they got bookstores. They got all kinds of stuff in churches today. Some churches look like a dang mall. I went to one in Chicago, and I could not tell it was a church. In fact, they have a, a philosophical view there. It's called Willow Creek Church, one of the biggest churches in America. They, their philosophy is we want to draw in unbelievers in, in hordes, and we don't put up any crosses on our campus because they're offensive. Excuse me? As soon as I landed and went to a conference there, I wanted to get back on the plane. I didn't know that when I was coming there for that. See, that's the idea of, of making the things of God more palatable and more convenient and all that to, to kind of try to draw people in, right? Pastors use a, a variety of lures and methods to try to draw people in. Catchy songs, got no theological spine, concert lighting. You go, I'll tell you what. Churches today have better lighting than Pink Floyd. Some of you were old enough to know what Pink Floyd lighting is like. Remember the laser show? Some of you are like, what's a Pink Floyd? I know a Britney Spears, but I do not know a Pink Floyd. Yeah. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Laser stuff going on all over, and you're just like, whoa. You know you weren't sober when you were there. 
Pastors use catchy songs and, 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 and concert lighting and smoke. They fill the room so filled with smoke. All these elaborate videos and things and dramas. They come out, oh, you know, and dance routines. I can't dance. You just saw it. <laughs> Cafes, bookstores, gyms. I'm going to pump you up for Jesus. You know, it's crazy, man. It's a dang church. <laughs> I hate you for asking that. He said, is it a church? Well, people think it is. People think it is, right? I, I, my personal favorite lure, uh, seeker-sensitive lure, is, is, is it's called the, the sermonette. I mean, I think of smurfette. A sermonette. You know what sermonette means? It means a short sermon, 15, 20 minutes tops. That's point one. A sermonette. And somebody once said, it's so brilliant, somebody once said, Sermonettes produce Christianettes. Boom. I was like, I like him. I'm taking that and making that mine. I totally agree with him. It's, it's like pastors today are in a race with one another to see who can build the largest churches the fastest. Right? That, that's what I feel like is going on. That's what I'm seeing. It's like they're egomaniacs. They're obsessed like more people give them more value, more credibility, more honor in the community. I want you to think in terms of logic for a moment. If we rely on consumerism, what do we end up with? Consumers! If you use purely consumeristic tactics to draw people in, you are going to end up with consumers. Is there something wrong with being a consumer? Not necessarily. Are consumers harming the church? Yes. You know, people that come into the church and they want all these bells and whistles and all these things. You know how many people we've had come visit this church and not stick because we did not have the bells and whistles of the church down the street? It, it perpetuates consumerism. So if, if you use consumeristic tactics, you're going to draw in consumers. That's logic. I like what Mark Dever said at a conference I went to last year in Kentucky. It was awesome. He basically said, you know... If you do this, you're going to end up with consumers. And he said, look, look what's happening in churches today. Guys are using these tactics, and, and masses of unbelievers are being swept into the church. Now, some of you would say, well, that's a good place for an unbeliever to be. For a little while, but not for a long time. They need to be converted, or else they take over the church, and it's not a church anymore. It becomes what unbelievers do. I was one for 30 years. I was not church guy. You, you want people to be converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and throwing all this consumeristic stuff and watering everything down. I, it'd, it'd be a miracle. It'd be a miracle on top of 10 miracles that somebody could get converted in an environment like that where you've taken all the stuff that God has prescribed and jettisoned it and thrown it out. I hope they get buffed when they're doing their presses. I mean, I hope they're not buffed. You'll get buffed. I hope they get saved when they're doing their leg presses. Nobody's going to get saved doing leg presses got to have the gospel. So if you rely on consumeristic things, consumerism, you'll end up with consumers. Mark Dever just nailed that at that conference. He just said, and look what's happening. All these unbelievers are coming into the church, but they're staying unbelievers. That's a bad thing. And I would say this, uh, and the opposite of relying on consumerism, we rely on the things of God, His ordinary means of grace, and the Holy Spirit moves in power. What do you end up with? New Christians. Maturing Christians, et cetera, et cetera, right? If you do things God's way, it bears the right fruit. It, it accomplishes the right purposes and goals because those are the things that God works through and has promised to work through. I believe this text that we're looking at is a warning to pastors and church, church leaders like me, maybe like you if you're one, even to congregates. I think the warning's clear. Stick to what God has prescribed in His Word for the church, or you will find yourself face-to-face -face with the head of the church. That's what we see in this text, in a sense. When Jesus comes into the house of God, He sees that it is being used for something other than what it had been consecrated to be used for. He becomes filled with righteous indignation, and in verses 15 to 16, He takes action. He does four things here. Number one, He made a whip. Verse 15a, and making a whip of cords. 
Okay, I don't know about you, but it's going to be really weird if I see somebody holding a whip. I'm waiting to get snapped in the rear or something, right? You ever heard one of those things get cracked, a bull whip? Do you know that that crack is not just the sound of the whip, it's the sound of the sound barrier being broken? Have you ever seen somebody whipped? He made a whip. That's, that's a weapon, if you think about it, in a way. He took cords and, and, and turned them together and, and started popping it to make sure that it would be effective. He made a whip. Number two, he drove everyone out, including the animals. Verse 15b, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. So he goes through there, sees what's happening, makes a whip, and starts whipping people right out the, the exit. And all the, all the animals and, ah, are all going out, and all the people, ah, people are going. It must have been a scene. Think about that. It must have been a scene. Just whips them all right out of that place. Number three, he dumped their coins and flipped their tables. Verse 15c, he poured out the coins of the money changers. He goes over and picks up these boxes and flips them over and empties them all out on the tables. Then he takes the tables and gives them a boot. They flip over. The coins explode all over the place. Overturn their tables. So he's got a whip. He drives everyone out. He dumps the coins. He flips the tables. Number four, he rebuked the pigeon sellers. Verse 16, I wonder if they were just lingering, going, you're not touching my stuff. I don't know why they were still in there at this point, or maybe they were on their way out. Verse 16, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Now listen to this rebuke. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is the correction that he gives them. I'll tell you what, Jesus just isn't very tolerant, is he? Oh, what, can you imagine something like this happening today? How many lawsuits would he have against him? The ACLU would be on him like a cheap suit. He hurt my feelings. Run to your safe zone, Freddy. I need a pump iron. I just, this is, he's just not politically correct. He's just not tolerant. He's insensitive. He didn't use the right pronouns. He's ticked. And people say, well, you know, they, they try, to, try to paint that a certain way and, and make it look softer, and he really wasn't upset, and it was this and that, and, and he was upset. And he cleared. We call this the cleansing of the temple. He cleansed. He purged the temple of this wickedness. And I'll tell you what, what do you think the disciples who were with him were doing? Whoa! Did you see that? I knew he knew karate. They were just watching and they were just mind blown. They were just standing there in utter amazement, probably a little bit of fear, going, Jesus don't play games. They were watching him cleanse this, this temple. And I'll tell you what, by taking control over this situation and driving out those merchants and money changers and those animals, Jesus was doing something here in front of everyone, but particularly in front of his disciples. He was displaying his authority over worship. He was saying to everyone there, you don't get to make this up and do what you want to do. There is a way to worship my Father, and this is not it. He's, he's showing and illustrating that he has authority over worship. And he's teaching his disciples simultaneously to take worship seriously. Did the administrators, those who orchestrated all of this stuff, did they learn their lesson? Did they change their ways? Did they keep the court of the Gentiles sacred right after this purging and cleansing how long did it take for them to go back to business as usual or did they listen to Jesus and say whoa we'll never do that again no they, they went right back to business as usual probably right when Jesus left after Jesus and the disciples departed the administrators quickly restored the booths and restored uh, returned to business as usual how do I know this well near at the Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he returned to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, found the same stuff going on, and cleansed it a second time. 
Twice he did it at the beginning of his ministry and at the end. Matthew 21, 12 through 13. Now they didn't learn their lesson. Why? Because we don't learn our lesson. Sinners don't learn their lessons. They begin to learn their lessons through the power of the Holy Spirit once they yield to Jesus, but apart from Him, they don't learn. They only want what they want. And what they want is right to them, and they don't care. I know, this is how I was. They didn't learn. Verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered this particular verse, when they saw Jesus doing this, they immediately thought of an, an old passage. Reminded the disciples of a passage which describes the coming Messiah's intolerance for irreverence toward God. And let me tell you something. Jesus is one of those people that if he's standing in a, in a, in a, in a group and somebody takes the, his name or God's name in vain or says something like that, he doesn't sit there and tolerate it. He rebukes. How dare you? He, he, did not take in, he did not take irreverence towards the Father. He suffered the, the cursings and, and persecution of people all day long. That's why he came to do that. But when somebody did something and blasphemed, the, no, 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 no. He wouldn't, he wouldn't tolerate it. He would not tolerate this blasphemy that was playing out in the temple here. See, see the disciples remembered a passage that talked about the attitude of the Messiah when he would come. 69.9, Psalm 69.9, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a, really a prophecy about Jesus. When King David wrote this psalm, he was being persecuted because of his zeal toward God's house and his defense of God's honor. Now, I don't think David understood the prophetic importance of his words here, how they applied to Jesus, Messiah, who came later on. I don't know if he understood that, but the disciples right at this point made the connection. And I think the disciples were afraid that Jesus' actions would bring about similar persecution from the religious leaders that were present at this moment. And I think the fact that they were able to connect a thousand-year-old, that's when King David lived a thousand years before Jesus, the fact that they were able to connect a thousand-year-old messianic prophecy to Jesus is amazing. And it illustrates that they believed that Jesus is Messiah. And it also illustrates that they had an incredible knowledge of Scripture. They're seeing that thousand-year-old verse come to life. Zeal, zeal for your house has consumed me. They see that zeal consuming Jesus as he cleanses that place. Pretty amazing. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? While the disciples were connecting the dots and marveling at Jesus, the Jews stepped forward and questioned Jesus. Several weeks ago, I explained the different meanings of the word Jews in John's gospel. Sometimes it is used in reference to the Jewish people. It's a generalization for the Jewish people, like in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews. There it's a generalization. Other times it is used in reference to the religious leaders, as it is here in verse 18. So Jews in verse 18 means the religious leaders. It was the religious leaders who came forward and questioned Jesus. The question they asked Jesus challenged His authority. They were not happy with what he was doing right now in the temple. They were sitting there watching him whip this place clean, and they were standing there in all their religious garb together in their little club, and they were saying, who on earth does this man think he is? Who told him he could come in here and do this? Who gave him the authority to come in here? We think about what Jesus was doing to the enterprise and to... Uh, to what they had established, he was disrupting the commerce they worked hard to establish. This impacted the flow of money into the temple treasury and into the money changers' pockets. I like to think of it like this. Jesus hit them where it counts, in their wallets. I tell you, you want to get a, at somebody's attention? You take the money. Now, now, hold on a second. You weren't listening to me before. I am now. 
I, I believe that this state might turn around from its current trajectory once everyone in the state is, is, is bled dry of their money, then people will come to their senses and say, we are literally being taxed to death. We need a new administration in office. I think that's what's going to happen. I don't care who you are. When you take the money away from people, that's when change really comes. And it's going to impact every class, social class, at some point with the way they're taxing right now. You want to hit them hard, hit them in the wallet. Jesus isn't hitting them in the wallet deliberately. He is, he is defending God's honor in the place of worship and upholding its purpose, but simultaneously hammering them in the wallet. Now, the religious leaders, the Jews, had already heard about Jesus at this point because down in verse 23, we see that Jesus was performing signs, that's miracles, in Jerusalem during this visit. So at this point, Jesus is already becoming pretty popular. They knew who he was. They knew about the signs and wonders and things that he was doing in his teachings. They, they probably heard the chants of some of the people saying, I think Messiah's here, I think Jesus is it. They knew what was going on. Jesus was getting some attention at this point. It's the beginning of his ministry, but energy was being generated. Things were happening. People were talking about him. The religious leaders asked Jesus, this is basically what they did, they asked Jesus to prove his messianic identity, the fact that he's... Messiah, and they, they basically asked him to uh, prove his messianic authority through a sign, through a miracle. You claim to have the authority to do this. Show us a miracle to prove that you do. That's what they're saying to him, in effect. These guys were always trying to get Jesus to perform for them like a seal with a ball. You've seen the seal balancing the ball. They were always trying to get him to perform for them, but they had no intention of believing in Jesus. They hated Jesus. They sought to kill Jesus. Why? Because they were jealous. They were envious of him. In Matthew 12, 38 through 42, the same Jews, the same group, demanded another sign from Jesus. Did he accommodate them at that point? No. Instead, he called them an evil and adulterous generation. <laughs> Jesus didn't bow to them or perform for them. How did Jesus respond this time to, the, to them? The earlier uh, experience here, look at 19. Jesus answered them. He gives this kind of cryptic message. It's interesting. We'll, we'll break it down, but I don't think they knew what was going on. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But Jesus was not speaking about the physical brick-and-mortar building they were standing near in the, in the presence of. That's not what he was talking about. He was speaking of his own body. He basically said, you will see the sign of my messianic authority when you kill me and I am raised to life in three days. In other words, the sign of my messianic authority will be my resurrection. That's how you'll know I have authority to do these things. MacArthur makes an interesting observation at this point. He says, Through the death and resurrection of Christ, temple worship in Jerusalem was destroyed and reinstituted in the hearts of those who were built into a spiritual temple called the church. That's really interesting. Jesus wasn't technically threatening the temple at this point or talking about it. He's talking about His body. But in a deeper sense, that temple and the worship that existed there was being overridden and put away by the work that he was doing. We don't worship God in temples made by human hands anymore. Where, where is the temple of God today? The believer is the temple of God, right? He exists here in the believer. This is how he makes his presence known and, and shows his presence on earth right now. It is every believer is the temple of the Lord. And this is something that Jesus was putting together and, and faceting and building at this point. He would finally uh, set up at his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus did bring an end to the era of temple worship. Because of his finished work, God is no longer present in Jewish temples or to be worshiped there. He is here in our hearts, but he will come and establish a kingdom and a temple, and those things will be repeated in a way more glorious uh, fashion, and it's going to be incredible. 
Believers, I want you to think of it like this. God is present in the hearts of His people through the Holy Spirit. Believers have become the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Did the religious leaders understand what Jesus meant? Did they understand the implications of His cryptic statements? Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Uh, no, they did not understand what he was talking about. They thought Jesus was referring to the physical temple, to the building complex. They thought Jesus at this point was absolutely crazy. This place has taken 46 years to build. In fact, it was still under construction. If it were destroyed, you're saying, Jesus, that, that you could rebuild it in three days? Yeah, right. Good luck with that nut job. They thought he was crazy. They thought this guy's lost his mind. He's got no authority. He shouldn't be here doing this. Look at the things that he's saying. 40, it's taken 50 years to get this place where it's at. You're going to take it down and raise it back up in three days? Come on, dude. That's what they're thinking. Later on at the trial of Jesus, these same Jews, these religious leaders, used this statement against Jesus, Matthew 26, 61. They basically told the high priest that Jesus was a risk, that he was dangerous because he had made a threatening statement against the temple. They said, Jesus threatened to tear it down. It was actually illegal to speak against the temple. It was. You could actually be incarcerated for uttering negative things or blasphemous things against the temple. I don't like this building. It's stupid. The colors are done. You're going to jail. You could actually be put to death for saying bad things about the temple at this point. This is why they were throwing these allegations and things at Jesus during his night court that he was forced to be a part of. They did not understand what he meant. Even Jesus' disciples did not understand what he meant. Not right here they didn't. They did not rightly understand what he meant until later on. Look at 21 through 22, our last set of verses. It says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it wasn't until after the resurrection that the disciples understood what Jesus meant. After witnessing his resurrection, they were able to connect his words with the destruction of his body on the cross at Golgotha, with his burial in a rich man's tomb, and with his rising from the tomb Three days later, that's when they were able to put it together. Jesus' prophetic statement here at the temple became lucidly clear to them when they saw and spoke with the, the risen Lord. That's when they were, okay, I get what he meant back then. And what did this statement and what did this result in later when they understood all of it, when they were able to put it together, when they saw the risen Lord? What was the the final outcome or the fruit that came from it, it resulted in deeper faith, right? John put it like this, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You know, sometimes I believe Jesus went through all of this just to teach his disciples things, not everyone else around, just to shape them and to build their understanding of him. And the fruit that came out of this whole thing after Jesus was resurrected was that their faith was built up because they saw the connection between Jesus' words and the risen Jesus. He was talking about him being destroyed and him raised. didn't have to do with the physical building. They believed the scripture, and here's, here's how you should interpret uh, part of verse 22, the second half of 22. They believed the scripture in that they believed what it says about Jesus as Messiah. And they believed the prophetic word Jesus had spoken when they were at the temple. Do we realize that in this narrative, Jesus prophesied? He said, you'll see the sign when I'm killed and raised. Was he not killed a couple of years later and raised? Yes, see, he prophesied about his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the text in a nutshell. Let's deal with an application. Maybe this is where the rubber meets the road for us. I pondered and pondered what God might want us to take from this text, what He might want us to apply and walk away with. I think there's a zillion things. Maybe He's already spoken to you. 
Uh, there's two things uh, that I focused on that I would like for us to consider as we begin to wrap up. These are tied to the text. First, I already said this, Jesus has authority over our worship. This is an important truth that's in this text. This basically means that worship is to be done His way in accordance with Scripture. This means that we do not get to do whatever we want when we assemble. We do not get to make it up as we go. And if you step into some churches today, that's exactly what you see. Because you see people doing things that are not represented in Scripture. Which means they don't understand this. Jesus has set forth the parameters and rules for worship in the Scripture. God has set forth everything that we need to know in Scripture. Everything that we need to know that's pertinent to our our lives and our faith and our worship, it's all in Scripture. He has left nothing uh, in the flux. Everything is revealed. People, I hear people say it all the time. Well, God has given us a brain where you use it and to think through and figure out how to do some of these things. Why don't you use that brain and that mind power to search the Scriptures to find the answers because they're there. And when we don't do that, we come up with stuff that we think pleases Him and stuff that we think is good. I'm pretty sure that the guys that set up the marketplace in the court of the Gentiles had the best of intentions and they thought they were doing the right thing. And then Jesus comes to town and completely destroys what they set up. If Jesus were to come into our church on a Sunday morning, would he throw some of us around? Would he fashion a whip? Would he be pleased with what we're doing? I, I ask myself these I have to ask myself these questions. I'm a leader at this church. I'll tell you what, Scripture says a lot about worship. Uh, so much there's no way I could even try to integrate it into this sermon. There's a lot in Scripture about worship. But there's one thing that really stands out right now, and I think it goes with our text perfectly, and it is order. Our God is a God of order, and we, when we assemble, we should be orderly. This is not to say that we don't leave room for the Holy Spirit to do whatever. For crying out loud, the Holy Spirit's supposed to be planning our entire service whether, wherever we're at thinking through this stuff. He is the leader of our service. And some people say, well, you don't want to plan everything out because you don't leave room for the Holy Spirit. If, if you say that, then you don't understand that the Holy Spirit's supposed to be involved in your planning process. Well, He can only come in when we don't do anything and let Him go. Is that how we live our lives as Christians? I just hope something happens. It's going to be messy. It's not going to please, your life's not going to please God if that's the way we think. Order is important. The merchants... The money changers, the animals in the temple courts created the opposite. They created disorder because they weren't supposed to be there. And they were noisy and they were causing distractions. My question is, how are God's people going to engage in worship, in prayer, in the activities that are assigned to that particular location, that ordained moment? How are they going to engage in worship when their environment is disorderly? They're not. So why are we coming together then if we're not engaging our hearts in worship? We're wasting God's time. I'll tell you, the Corinthians experienced disorder in their gatherings, but it wasn't because of merchants, money changers, or animals. It was because of them. Because they were doing all kinds of stupid stuff. You've seen the warnings and the rebukes and the corrections in the beginning of the book of Revelation where Jesus rebukes churches because they have forsaken their first love? I'll tell you what. Here are the top three ways disorder enters our gatherings. Tardiness. When people get here late, everyone's worshiping, the door flies open, everyone goes, longing just to bring. Hey, hi, Bill. I think, yeah. It happens. I know it seems trivial, but it's not. Tardiness disrupts, especially in our old building. Remember that old decrepit building? It was 100 years old. When you opened the door, everything moved. 
It was insane. This one's a little quieter. But tardiness is disruptive because people are coming into something that's already began and, and we're trying to worship, we're trying to center our hearts, we're trying to get focused on why we've come. Why, why have you come, Phil? I, I think I've come here to worship the Lord and I've got to focus and I've got to think and I've got to kind of put some things aside and all that. As soon as I get into it, I hear, hey, it's good to see you. And I'm like, oh, I'll get back in a minute, Lord. It happens. This is practical, guys. I don't know what we need to do to fix that. I think pretty much everyone in this room right now is here on time. So, of course, those who need to hear it aren't here. So make sure you let them know that you got tore up for them. Right? It happens every time, man. I got people in mind. I know they're offenders, and then they're not here, and I unleash on you, and they're like, but I'm here all the time, all the time, and I, I, what does he want from me? I'm not Jesus. I know. They're never here. Let's make sure they know. I sound like George Costanza. I'm getting upset. It just right? Am I wrong? Because you guys, I'm not, I'm not speaking on just on my behalf. But you're, you're here and you understand what's going on and you see it, right? I mean, don't you see that yourself? Don't, sometimes you're sitting there and you're like trying to worship and all that and you're like, oh man, they're, they're over here and they're doing this and, and they just came in and they flew through the door and there was 18 of them. That's cool though, but because we haven't had 18. But you know, <laughs> I don't know. Some people say, well, it's just, it's just better that they're there and it's better to be late than not there at all. Some would say that. She says, not every time, though. Yeah, exactly. Every week. Man, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, amen, right? So, so I'm just saying, tardiness is disorderly. Talking, number two, is disorderly, right? You know? I, 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 I have terrible hearing, but when I'm in the pulpit, I'm like a dog. What, you got dog ears? I, hear, I can hear. Uh, they're going to get a super burrito for lunch. How does that have to do with temple worship? I hear it. I hear stuff. You know? It sounds like a foreign tongue, but I hear it. But, you know, when you talk and stuff. Remember, we had some visitors that came in here, man. I don't know what it was. But right in the middle of the sermon, man, you know, it's like, hey, man, I got to tell a story. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, what? You remember that? Hey, I, I got to tell you about something. I don't want to make fun of the guy, right, a little bit. But it was like, dude, preaching. Force field. I, maybe it came from church circles where it's okay to do that. This ain't one of them. Because everyone, it wasn't just me, everyone was going, what is he doing? Oh, that hurt. Tardiness, walking in, disrupting, talking, right? That, that's disruptive. I'll tell you what another one is. And, and you're, you're going to think, oh, that's just terrible. Who does that? I'm going to kill him. Sleeping. Oh, that doesn't happen here. Oh, yes, it does. Not only do I have dog ears when I'm in the pulpit, I have falcon vision. I'm preaching, and I'm like, and I'm staring at him. He's, and I'm thinking, you know, part, you're probably thinking, what, what would Pastor Phil think when he sees that? Oh, look how tender. What a tender one. He's getting his rest, you know, and all that. No, I'm thinking, what a fool. He didn't get to bed early enough. What is he doing? What is he thinking? Look, bare minimum, if somebody's sleeping during the message or whatever, it's disorderly and distracting for me, and I'm trying to preach. I don't think that's a good idea to, 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 to you, anyone knows me, getting me off track is really bad, right? We have elders. Phil, we need to talk to you. It's because Fred was sleeping. No, 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 no. You don't say those things when somebody's sleeping. Sleeping, that's disorder. That's disorder. And what do you got to do to be here on time? What do you got to do to keep this just little zipper? Just zip it up. What do you got to do to be awake and attentive and paying attention during the message and during the rest of it and everything else? What's it going to take? Because I think that that's our money changers and our, and our cattle. and <laughs> They're just simple distractions, but they're distractions. And they, they pull us out of the right mode and away from what we're supposed to be doing when we're here. 
And there are other factors and things that play on us, right? What we were dealing with before we got to church and what we were dealing with during that week, there are other things that are going on. It gets amplified when people are coming in late and snoring or sleeping or distracting or talking or whatever, right? I'm just saying, I think those are the things that hinder us and create disorder. I'm just trying to, just trying to lay it out there, and I know I'm being silly about it, but really, take me serious. We come here to worship. We don't come here to pump iron. We come here to worship the Lord and to praise Him. And, 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 and we need to guard our hearts and our actions and make sure that we're not creating distractions and disorder through what we're doing here. We've got to remember why we come. Here's, here's the one that really impacted me. And that's second, Jesus has authority over our temples, our bodies. If you are a Christian, you have been bought at a price, the precious blood of Jesus, and you are not your own. You do not belong to you. You belong to Jesus. And what you do with your temple, what you do with the members of your body directly impacts the Lord Himself. Our physical bodies represent His physical body on earth. This is why we're called the body of Christ. We are the members of His body. He is the head. We are the physical manifestation of His physical body on earth. Think about that for a second. Is He saying, I'm Jesus? Not like you're thinking. Jesus has ordained for him to be present in his people as the body of Christ and he is our head. That's the mode that we're in right now until he comes back. And this is why the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians to flee from things like sexual immorality. A couple examples he gives, or at least one example that he gives. If a Christian joins the members of his or her body, I know it's kind of rough to hear, but just listen to me. If a Christian joins the members of his or her body with a prostitute, it is to use part of Christ's own body in an act of fornication. It is to, in a sense, drag Christ through that sinful experience. And the Apostle Paul says, no, don't do it, with an exclamation point right at the end of that verse. If a, if a Christian joins the members of his or her body with pornography, it is to use part of Christ's own body in an act of sexual sin and or adultery or fornication. If a Christian joins the members of his or her body with other sins, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, uh, envy, drunkenness, stoned, whatever you want to call it, if a Christian joins the members of his body in any of those sins, in any sin at all, it is to use part of Christ's own body in those sins. It is to take him through that in a way. Very serious. Very serious what we do with our bodies if we belong to Christ. I don't think that I ponder those verses or consider the implications enough. Because if I did, I think I would pursue sin less knowing that I'm taking my beloved Lord into that stuff. He has authority over our temples. We belong to Him. That means that our bodies have been set apart for His purposes, not our own, not the deeds of the flesh. So I have two closing questions. First, are you causing disorder in our worship services? You know, lateness, sleeping, whatever it is, talking. If so, what do you need to change about that? I'll tell you, you need to stop. You need to get more sleep so you can get here on time. Whatever it is, you need to do what you got to do and take what we do here seriously. Second, what's going on with your temple? How have you been using it? Have you been honoring the Lord of your temple with your temple? Have you been honoring Jesus with it? If not, what coins need to be dumped? What tables need to be flipped? 
You just, just, just imagine yourself before Jesus right now. He sees everything that you're doing. He knows everything that's going on. He knows all your thoughts, all your actions, all your deeds. What does he see? What does he hear? A disorderly temple with sin and foolishness? Scares the daylights out of me to ponder that at times. Next week, let me tell you, you want to take a weekend off, it's a perfect one to do it because we're going to talk about how Jesus has authority over human hearts and how he knows what's going on in here. Because you know what we know? We know what's going on on the exterior, but he knows what is here. It's going to be a hard one, I think, for me. That's my point. I want to get to that. I don't want to leave you hanging on this just knowing that, oh, my goodness, I haven't been using my temple. What am I supposed to do now? I dishonored him or whatever. I, I know, I know, I know. I just want to say this to you. I just want to encourage you. I want to tell you that, that, that what did we just see Jesus do in this text? He came and cleansed the temple, didn't he? And he can do that in our temple. If we humble ourselves and come to him by grace through faith, he will wash away our sins. He will whip it clear and restore us to our proper purpose. 